You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Episode 68, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thanks for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Rudrani Banik, a neuro-ophthalmologist in New York City. Dr. Banik is a board-certified ophthalmologist, fellowship-trained in neuro-ophthalmology, and functional medicine expert. She graduated from Brown University, did her internal medicine training at Mount Sinai in Miami, before her specialty training at UC Irvine, and fellowship training at Johns Hopkins. After working as an academician at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx and New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai, she began a private practice called Envision Health NYC, although she still does teaching and research. I think you'll find her journey to private practice as interesting as I did, how she set up her medical practice to treat patients and why she chose not to accept insurance, and how does a specialist drive referrals? How do you find a niche in a city with the highest concentration of ophthalmologists in the country? tell you all about that in the interview, as well as talking a little bit about migraine treatment. Additionally, I think it's very important that I tell you what the fovea is. So it's a little bit strange, but the fovea is a spot in your retina, the back of your eye that receives light signals, and is where the concentration of receptors is highest and gives us our best vision. Anyway, it's important that you know what it is for a fantastic joke I tell in the middle of the interview. Well, I thought it was funny. Show notes, including links to Dr. Bannock's Facebook groups, Instagram account, YouTube, can be found at theparadox.com slash 068. You can find her practice at rudranibanikmd.com. That's R-U-D-R-A-N-I-B-A-N-I-K-M-D.com. Thanks again for the listen and for allowing me to do last week's emergency podcast on some bad pending legislation in Michigan concerning surprise billing. It's been helpful to people here in Michigan, so thanks for allowing me the indulgence of interrupting your Paradox feed. Now we're back to the regular Paradox feed and the usual episode numbering. So for your patience, today you can enjoy my discussion with Dr. Rodrani Bannock. An ophthalmologist sees the light. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Rodrani Bannock, a neuro-ophthalmologist in New York. Thank you so much for joining the show today. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Larson. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I was uh, drawn to you because you have a very interesting practice. Um, why don't you talk about what your practice is in New York, in the big city, and, uh, and it, I guess just sort of the evolution of how you got to where you are and the way you're practicing. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So I guess I'll go back to um, my field, which is uh, I trained in ophthalmology first, and then I did a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology. So it's not a very common subspecialty, but it's a very necessary subspecialty. And straight out of fellowship, um, I was kind of groomed to, to take an academic position. Uh, my mentor was, was very much an academician, and, and he kind of um, said, well, this is what you should do. So I listened to him, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll find myself an academic job. So I got a faculty position at um, Albert Einstein um, College of Medicine in the Bronx, and I was there for several years, and then subsequently... Um, um, I became a program director, still in academics. I was still doing ophthalmology, neuro-ophthalmology. And then I got um, a position at New York Eye and Ear Infirmary. And again, I was, I was doing um, a, a combination of things. So I was, I was seeing patients, I was teaching quite a bit, and I was doing clinical trials in neuro-ophthalmology. And basically, I, I, I imagined myself, I envisioned myself staying in academics for the rest of my career. Um, I really didn't think that there was any reason to change or to leave because I was quite happy in my position and I thought I would stay there till I retired. But, um, but things changed along the way. And this was about, uh, I would say about 2016 when um, there were some changes going on within the department. Um, my hospital had merged with a much larger um, organization and, um, and there were changes coming down the pipeline that I wasn't necessarily um, interested in participating in. And, and around the same time, um, I also started to have some health issues. And so I had migraines pretty much my whole adult life, but my migraines were very, very severe at that time. And it turned out that I was pretty, pretty much having a migraine every single day uh, because of stress and oh. poor diet and lifestyle. So I was going to work with a migraine every day, plus all these changes are happening at work in terms of administration and leadership. And and at, at that point, you know, I, I decided I need to, needed to kind of make a change in, in myself and my career. So um, I, I really uh, discovered around that time functional medicine. And I don't know if, if many of your listeners are familiar with functional medicine, because I certainly was not before I'd heard, you know, before 2016. Uh, I never even heard of the term, had no clue what it was. But basically, it's... Um, it's a way of looking at health, uh, basically chronic disease, and trying to get to the root cause. So not just uh, making a diagnosis and prescribing a medication and putting a Band-Aid on it, but really trying to fix the problem at its core and addressing it that way. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I became really intrigued by functional medicine. I used some of the principles to fix my own issues. So um, I began to make major changes in my uh, nutrition, which I think was really the root cause of my migraine. I, I had a horrible diet. And I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't sleeping properly. wasn't um, eating meals on time. There's so many things I was doing not right. I was also having lots of caffeine. So I think functional medicine really improved my <laughs> own issues. And around the same time, when things were going on at work, um, I was thinking, well, I think I want to incorporate functional medicine more into my practice, not just for my own health, but for my patients. Sure. Limitation of functional medicine is that it takes quite a bit of time to address patients' issues. And many times patients have multiple issues. So it can't be handled within just a 10 or 15 minute visit. Um, oftentimes visits are an hour or two or perhaps even longer, especially in a neuro-ophthalmic visit. 
So um, I made the big leap and, and I decided to leave my position in academics and I decided to venture out and open up a private practice so I could practice functional medicine in the way I thought was best for my patients. So long story short, <laughs> that's kind of how I, I came to uh, becoming a, in private, you know, getting into private practice and also pursuing functional medicine. I've never heard a story about a physician who doesn't eat well, has lots of caffeine, and doesn't sleep. <laughs> That's, that might describe everybody. I know, in right? <laughs> so, and it's funny. Well, I, I was I was as an extreme. I was really an, at an extreme. I mean, I, I was having like eight to twelve cups of caffeinated beverages a day, and just sleeping four hours a night. I mean, I was really in bad shape. So, wow. Um, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, this is a story you hear all the time, but it's certainly people say, well, once I'm done with training, I'll kind of go back to being, being healthy <laughs> again. And, uh, you know, once habits form, they're mm -hmm. tough to break. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's probably the biggest challenge when it comes to functional medicine or sort of basically you're just changing someone's lifestyle entirely. Right. And saying, this is, we're going to try and figure out what's going on. And then we have to fix, <laughs> fix your habits. How do you uh, how do you go about that with with patients? To yeah. is it is it is the hardest part convincing that there's a problem or that you kind of guessing what the problem is or how how do you sort of work that investigative sort of detective work? Um, I think I actually have um, uh, how should I put this a benefit in that because I'm in private practice, um, patients actually seek me out, and what ha what's happened is that they've gone to other doctors, perhaps other ophthalmologists and neurophthalmologists. And they have not gotten better. They still have the same symptoms. They're not feeling feeling better. They're not seeing better, um, or they're still getting headaches. And so um, they failed other treatment regimens. And they are looking for a better way to approach their problem. And so when they already come, when they come to see me, they're already in the mindset where I need to fix this, and I need to find a doctor who's going to guide me to fixing this. So so um, I think uh, emotionally, spiritually, they're they're already in. You know, in terms of uh -huh. that, um, there has to be. Um, a team effort in terms of fixing that root cause, and um, you know many of these patients are willing to make major changes, whether it's their diet or certain lifestyle patterns that they have, their sleep schedule, their travel schedule, their work schedule, whatever it is. Uh, many patients have gotten to the point where they they just can't go on the way that they're they've been doing. So I think I'm I'm in an, at an advantage and advantage in that situation because patients are already primed to come to see me. There are still challenges, you know, mentioned, um, you, you, as you mentioned, um, you know, diet is so difficult to change and to break those habits, um, you know, meal, meal, um, you know, what, what someone's eating actually, but also meal timing is also very important and of course portion size. So it's very difficult to modify that unless someone is 100% in and they want to do it with you. Do you find that a lot of problems are related to dietary? I mean, I think there's more research coming out that there's the inflammatory effects of like, you know, simple sugars and things like that, that I think we didn't, we weren't well appreciated medicine and that the, the potential influence it has on disease processes. Uh, so do you go through the, do you have to use the science? I mean, I guess you said you have people are sort of willing, but do you use the science to try and uh, find a, the sort of the, the root cause a little bit faster or how... How do you, how is it, someone comes in, let's say with migraines, maybe just an example. Someone comes in with migraines, they've had it like you did. How do you go about figuring out what's going on and how to fix it? So, you know, I first do an intake, which is quite extensive. So I ask them about their habits. 
um, you know, how, how much, what are they eating? How much are they eating? Um, and, and all the other things. And also I ask about stress levels. And for many patients, what it comes down to honestly is just reducing their stress levels, specifically for migraine, but perhaps for other conditions, other inflammatory conditions, it's much more than that. And one thing I've, I've kind of learned in my functional medicine training is that many conditions are very closely tied to gut health. So it may not just be inflammatory foods, but it could also be disturbances in the microbiome mm-hmm. and or what they call gut dysbiosis. And so um, I do really address that quite a bit in terms of what's going on in their GI system, because um, it may sound a little odd, but I really do believe that there is a gut-eye connection. Um, I know many people have maybe heard of a gut-brain connection or gut immune, definitely a gut-immune connection, but there is such a thing, I think, as a gut uh, eye connection. And I think that um, there are certain, um, you know, uh, bacterial kind of strains, which, which are, which may be impacting someone's, which may be affecting their neurotransmitters, um, affecting their immune system, kind of, uh, kind of triggering or, or allowing the, the chronic inflammation that's leading to their issues. So it does require some detective work. Um, I know living in, I, I, I practice in New York, I am very limited in terms of testing that I can do. Um, I happen to live in a state where I'm very limited in terms of I can't order a comprehensive stool analysis to see exactly which microbial species are in, in, the, um, in the gut. I'm not really permitted to do that. Um, I'm not really permitted to do food sensitivity testing. So I'm limited in my testing. So I really base a lot of my um, diagnosis and, and treatment decisions based off of clinical history, really. Wow. Now, when you say you're limited by testing, is that that the testing exists, but you're just, but by specialty, you're not allowed to to test for those things? In New York State, certain tests are disallowed um, at a a state level. Um, And so uh, if you wanted to, for example, order a specific test, which is not within the limits of what New York State allows, you'd have to get um, a special permission from uh, from Albany, basically. So it's, it's a very interesting situation. I don't know how many other states are are um, in this <laughs> in this conundrum because it is really a conundrum. I'm not I, I'm not able to freely order what I think the patient may need, and it's it's actually um, sometimes quite difficult for patients. And I end up sometimes having to send them to neighboring states. So I will send them to either New Jersey or even Connecticut just to get the testing done. And it's it's mind boggling that I can't order in my own state. I wish I actually had licenses in those days. Maybe I should get licenses in those states so I can I can order the testing myself. But um, it's a, it's a tricky situation, and it's it's not by specialty. Interestingly, it's it's an you know across the board rule or law. I guess. So someone just decided we're not going to allow this certain test to be performed in the state of New York for some reason. That seems very. I mean, yes. all the st- states are weird. I mean, in the sense that there are there are definitely there's a uniqueness to every state and sort of their laws and whether it comes to certificate of need or, but this is a new sort of thing. I've never heard of this before. So that's very, that's very interesting. The lab requisition forms, they'll actually have, you know, they'll list all the tests that they offer and they'll put a little asterisk right, right next to there. And then on the bottom, they'll say not available in New York state. Um, <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting. <laughs> so I've got three people at my house who, who deal with migraines and sometimes pretty bad. And, you know, there's uh, one's one's a, a senior in high school and others in eighth grade. And then uh, my wife's had it since she was had them since she was three. And there are always, you know, some triggers that are obvious and others that are not quite so much. Uh, 
I know you have, I think you've got a, a large selection of eBooks that you have published or have available on your website. And one of them is on migraines. Can you sort of walk through what's uh, in the eBook and sort of what kind of information someone might gather from there that'd be helpful? Sure. So an eBook, um, uh, it, it's a short, uh, a short volume. It's, it's not a, a very extensive sure. text. Um, it's usually something um, in the order of, you know, anywhere from 10 to 50 or 75 pages. And so in, I have, I have a few eBooks on my, my website. The one on migraine, um, it's titled uh, Six uh, Natural Ways to um, Improve Your Headaches, uh, Start Suffering and, sorry, Stop Suffering and Start Living. <laughs> yeah. And so basically I go through what some of the dietary interventions are. And it's not the full dietary intervention, but um, it's basically... Uh, you know, I usually start patients on what's called an elimination diet, mm -hmm. which is a mainstay of functional medicine. And an elimination diet is basically removing all the pro-inflammatory foods. So it does include gluten and dairy, as well as some nightshade vegetables, um, occasionally soy as well. And these are thought to be uh, pro-inflammatory within the gut and can have immune um, kind of consequences. So the elimination diet is something that I recommend for three weeks. And so many patients are removing many food groups from their diet during this phase, but what I ask them to replace it with is very, very important. So I ask them to replace it with um, 12 therapeutic foods. And um, there's there's a whole list of them. Uh, they're in the ebook. Uh, I believe they're in the ebook. But, um, but basically, um, I really try to promote uh, a plant-rich diet. So I'm not saying plant-based diet, but a plant-rich diet. And I usually say, um, take out all those foods and replace it with five cups of vegetables a day. And there are some vegetables which are perhaps better than others. And um, I think by, by doing the diet, um, it may not be that, you know, that they benefit because they're not eating all those pro-inflammatory foods. It may just be that, they, be that they benefit because their blood sugar levels are better controlled. They're not having highs and lows. Um, or they're not having um, uh, as much uh, just simple sugars, they're not having as much salt, they're not having as much caffeine or red wine, whatever it is, um, I find that it's very effective. Uh, the other thing that's really critical for migraine is just hydration status. So something very, very basic that um, many people don't even really consider in terms of migraine prevention, but it's so important to stay hydrated. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard patients who develop migraine auras because they're working out at the gym and they're dehydrated or it's a really hot, humid day and they just haven't had enough fluids and they develop aura and then migraine. So um, it's just something really important to, to maintain is hydration status. Um, caffeine is very important. I had mentioned this before as well. Caffeine, you know, it's a double-edged sword with migraine. Sometimes um, uh, people need a certain amount of caffeine to prevent migraines, but having too much is not good either. So I usually try to get patients to reduce their caffeine levels down to eight ounces a day or less of a caffeinated beverage. Uh, sometimes it's difficult, but with time, hopefully they can they can get there. And then the stress reduction part is really important. You know, there's so many different stressors in our lives. We all have stress. You know, it's, it's an, an inevitable part of living, but yeah. it's really how we respond to that stress important. So, you know, whether it means doing meditation or, or listening to music or doing some form of exercise or just spending time with friends or family, you know, whatever, you know, the, the method is uh, that the person finds would be most helpful is, is what I recommend. So um, it does require a little, a little bit of kind of coaxing of patients, you know, so what do you enjoy? You know, maybe you can incorporate some of these things more into your life. 
and um, and hopefully you know their situation gets better with time. Yeah. Um, so those are the mainstays of migraine regimen. But I also use um, quite a few supplements for migraine that actually have, have been clinically proven to reduce frequent the frequency and severity of headaches. So. Um, my uh, magnesium is is right. uh, one of the really most beneficial mineral supplements that I found. Um, and there are different formulations of magnesium I find to be more effective for migraines. So the chelated forms that are the amino acid chelated forms, such as magnesium glycinate or uh, magnesium threonate. Riboflavin has also been shown uh, at high doses to help with migraines. So riboflavin B2, uh, 400 milligrams a day. In my regimens, I also sometimes use essential oils. So it's really a departure from the traditional uh, medical school kind of teaching of how do you treat migraine. You know, the traditional medical approach is typically, okay, you take this prescription and eventually your headaches will get better. Right. And, you know, it's, it's like putting a Band-Aid on the problem. It doesn't really solve what's really going on. So... Yeah, I mean, I think uh, when it, especially when it comes to migraines, more than something like hypertension is is almost like a baseline sort of condition that people have. I mean, there are certainly ways you, and dietary things you can do and losing weight and exercising more. But for the most part, it feels like migraines, there's definitely more, there, it definitely feels more like a triggering uh, phenomena that there are all sorts of different things that factor into whether you have one or don't or the severity of it and, you know, how long it lasts. Um but I want to switch gears a little bit now mm-hmm. to talk a little bit more about your practice because I'm always intrigued on how people, you know, change paths and then and then how they sort of how they figure out what they're supposed to do <laughs> because I think uh, it seems obvious to people who are on the outside like well of course you would you know set up your practice this way but when you when you decided to leave academics I mean academics and this is my impression as someone who's always been in private practice but you know you train at academic center. Uh, the academic schedule is fairly, uh, it's fairly regimented. It's fairly um, predictable as far as sort of what your expectations are and sort of how things are, and everything's kind of sort of built for you. There's not a lot that you have to set up for the most part. Um, but it's totally different for private practice. I mean, you have to be very intentional about how you're going to go about creating a practice and sort of how you're going to model it and get the work, the revenues and those sorts of things. How did you sort of figure all that stuff out when you decided to, to leave the academic world. So I was, I was scared to death, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly, universal. Because, I've heard. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, it's just, I, I just never pictured myself being the owner of a small business. And that's really what it is. It's running a business. And I had no business background. Um, my husband's in finance, but he didn't really actually help me that much. Honestly, <laughs> I kind of just figured things out by trial and error. Um, and, and, you know, I figured, you know, there, there are plenty of people out there in private practice. If they can do it, I can do it too. I just have to kind of figure out what's going to work for me. So, you know, I, um, I learned how to, to do all the, the back end stuff. So, you know, I had to find an EMR. I had to find a payroll provider. I had to figure out, okay, how am I going to find my staff? How, how, you know, am I going to have one staff member? Choose, I, you know, mm-hmm. I have a small practice, a solo practice. How many staff members do I really need? Uh, what are my hours going to be like? Because, um, yes, I was in private practice, but I still wanted to maintain that um, the academic affiliation. So um, I was not full. I was, did not start off full time in private practice. I was doing it part time. So how was that going to work? And then the other side of it is how would I get referrals? Um, because uh, when I chose to go into private practice, I also decided to no longer participate with any insurances. And this is a really major step for me. Um, 
you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I did not want to fe have my pa previous patients feel as though I was just leaving and kind of leaving them in the lurch without any follow-up care. But, um, but I decided to go fee-for-service, so cash only, uh, primarily because I did not want to deal with all the billing, the billing right. headaches yeah. and potentially get audited because I use, I was using, um, you know, in terms of the coding, the, C, the, the um, CPT codes, I was using um, high level codes for most of my business because they are quite complex, especially in neuro-ophthalmology. And I did not want to get audited. And, you know, if I spend an hour or two with the patient, I also wanted to make sure that I got reimbursed appropriately, you know, getting $35 for spending 45 minutes with a patient, which is not going to work uh, uh, yeah. in private practice. So I guess because of all these reasons combined, I chose to, um, you know, to, to leave, uh, leave the insurance model. And it was a big step. I really honestly did not know how it was going to go. And, and what I told myself was, you know, I will give this a limited amount of time to see if it's successful, if it's going to work or not. And after, and I, I kind of said loosely, anywhere from three to five years, I'm going to try this. And if it doesn't work, I can always go back to academics. There's always that fallback option. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's, that was kind of me a little bit of... Um, some comfort. You were able to sleep at night because of that. Yeah, some comfort. I, I had something to fall back on, um, some reassurance that, okay, I'll, I'll still find a job even if this doesn't work. But I have to say, you know, having been out in private practice now for over three years, I would never go back. Never. Because, you know, the, yes, there are either small headaches in terms of running a, you know, a business, you know, sometimes there's staffing issues or other issues that I previously did not necessarily have to deal with. But um, having the flexibility to, uh, to do what I want to do, to practice the way I want to practice, to practice the way I wish I, I would like my patients to, um, to, to get that kind of service, I don't think I could go back at this point. And it's not just the functional medicine component. I think overall, even if I went back to practicing straight ophthalmology, not even neuro-ophthalmology, I don't think I could go back. And then there's that other side of it is the flexibility in terms of the hours. Mm -hmm. um, I can choose to work as little or as much as I want. Um, I can take off for vacation whenever I want. So my daughter is still young. And um, you know, this past summer, I decided, hey, I, I'm going to take off three weeks. I'm going to take her to Asia, take her on a trip, uh, because pretty soon she's going to be older and she's not going to want to go with mom and dad. So, you know, if I were in, you know, if I were still an employee of a large hospital um, organization, I would not be able to just take off three weeks like that and, uh, and go on a family trip. So uh, there are definitely pluses and minuses. Yeah. I mean, everything's got trade-offs. That, that's all. That's what we learned in medicine. That's like the first thing, right? <laughs> the the trade-offs with anything. Uh, mm -hmm. And I and I feel like when I talk to the physicians who either direct primary care or I guess a lot of them who are specialists who are in the in, the insurance-free sort of model, they call, they consider themselves direct care, which is similar to direct primary care, but um, mm -hmm. it's obviously not primary care, but just that it's a fee, a fee for service cash base and, and it just provides that flexibility. The, the, the challenge, of course, is always the other things, like you mentioned. What you know, are you going to be able to have enough patients to keep the lights on? Can you make it? Can you stay busy enough? And can you charge enough? And are there people who are going to pay for that service? Right. In New York City, um, in my field in ophthalmology, in New York City, in the zip code that I'm in, has the highest density of neuro of ophthalmologists in the country. <laughs> So it seems like there's an ophthalmologist in every block almost, or two sometimes. So it's like you're like the fovea. Fovea of, of ophthalmology. So, so that was, you know, that was also a challenge is, you know, how would I get patients? And what I've learned is that 
you know, initially the first couple of months when I started in private practice, I would actually go and knock on people's doors and say, hey, I'm here. I'm around the corner from you. You know, I, I do this and this and this. I provide these services. Um, I'd be happy to, to help you out with any patients that you need. And the response I got was really shocking. Uh, the response I got was, well, thank you, but no, thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know how it is in other parts of the country, but, uh, you know, the, the, the physicians I saw um, in my neighborhood, they were set in their referral patterns and they would not be willing to refer outside of their referral patterns. So, um, so it's kind of an interesting situation. So I was a little bit discouraged, but then what I realized is that in this day and age, um, so many patients are on the internet and even, you know, the whole range. So even elderly patients, I have 70 or 80 year old patients who find me because they Google and they find me that way. And I realized, no, I don't need to get referrals. I don't need to go knocking on people's doors and get referrals from my colleagues. I can actually just put myself out there um, into the world of the internet, into the web and, you know, create, um, content that people would uh, would appreciate and I can get patients that way. So I've done quite a bit on, uh, on social media, kind of um, just providing educational content and I think people find me that way. Um, and so, so it's a completely different way of, of generating revenue, of, of developing um, a practice and a brand that I don't think I ever would have even known had I not left uh, academics because it never even crossed my mind. Oh, I should be doing these things. You know, I should be out there on social media. I should be creating videos. I should be doing um, uh, eBooks and things like that. So, so it's really, it's just completely changed my perspective and in all in a good way. Yeah, that's real interesting. And, and I think uh, th most physicians, that's probably safe to say, like you mentioned yourself, I don't ever think about branding and they don't think about sort of, I mean, producing content and sort of things to drive eyeballs to, no pun intended, <laughs> to, to their to them no and their practice, intended. right? No pun intended. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. when you when you've learned, did you like learn about this, or do you say, oh, you know, I tend to fall on pages with people with eBooks or with uh, video content? Is that what sort of got you the idea? Did you talk to someone? I mean, how did you sort of stumble upon this this plan to you know drive drive traffic to you? to you from the, the web? So uh, a couple of different different ways. So number one, I am part of a functional medicine uh, community. It's a very large community. So not just physicians, but um, there are uh, nutritionists, there's, there are PAs, uh, nurse practitioners, chiropractors, naturopaths, um, men, and even um, PhDs who are in the functional medicine world, who are providers in, in some way or form. And so um, they've really nailed it down. I mean, they know how to work social media and how to um, generate momentum for their practice or their brand or the service that they're offering. So uh, again, not everyone in the functional medicine world is an MD. And so I learned a lot from them and watching them and kind of seeing their successes, you know, how they've uh, navigated the space. The other thing that really opened my eyes was when I began to put together my website. And this is something that was just, you know, completely a different world to me. I had no idea, you know, what does a website have to have? You know, what are all these terms, call to action, lead magnet, um, SEO? I mean, all these terms I'd never heard of before because I never had to learn about them before. So um, I began to work with a web developer who uh, actually had worked with other functional medicine practitioners. And so in working with that, you know, him and his team, I learned so much about 
you know, how do you market yourself on social media? How do you market yourself on, on Google? How can you do the, how can you draft a, um, a perfectly worded Google ad, for example. Um, and I never, never knew any of this before. So I'm so happy that I did this, not just because of the satisfaction from, you know, the, the practice standpoint, but just from a personal growth standpoint is to learn how to do all this and, you know, kind of take it to the next level. And it, it took quite some time. I mean, this is not something I learned overnight. Um, I would say that it took me probably a year, year and a half to even get my website up and running the way that I wanted it to look and the way that I wanted it to function. So um, it's, it's, it's quite a time investment as well, but it's totally doable. And even with someone with no experience whatsoever in designing a website, um, if you ask me right now to put together a website, I probably could do it on my own. <laughs> um, so it was, it's a steep learning curve, but totally doable. And, uh, and, the, and the eBooks that you've written, I mean, how hard is it to do an eBook? It is so easy. It is incredibly easy. So, um, so the first thing is that you have to um, create, you know, find a topic, a relatively small topic that um, that you think your patients would or your your potential patients would want to hear about. And so, oftentimes, um, there are certain kind of catchwords in the title that will draw people in. So, for example, um, six ways to um, to lose weight. Or you know the, the the ten things that you should know about um, sleep hygiene, or you know whatever it is. So you have to find a catchy title, and then um, and then basically in the ebook, uh, basically the first kind of chapter or the introduction should be okay. What is the problem and, that someone may be having, and how can you, as the physician or the prov provider or expert in this area, provide them with information to help them? with their problem. So I think, I think you, you basically just have to draw people into your ebook first and then um, write a very brief ebook. It should be something uh, brief because people's attention spans are really not that long. You know, in the age of social media where people are scrolling uh, through, <laughs> you know, tens of hundreds of posts in, in just a few minutes, um, you, you really want to just create something short, digestible that people can really benefit from. So, you know, I wouldn't keep it, I wouldn't make it too long. So most of my eBooks are fairly short, I would say 20 pages or less. But again, you can do something a little bit longer. Um, also intersperse it with um, plenty of interesting um, illustrations or diagrams or infographics. People love in infographics. Um, and then um, at the end, you know, have, have a call to action, which is basically what is the next step the person should be taking after reading your ebook. So maybe it's calling your practice for an appointment, or maybe it's doing a phone consult with you or a telemedicine consult with you, or maybe it's um, purchasing a product that you've developed or, or you, you would like to promote. So there should be always a call to action at the end uh, to get them to engage further with you. Or maybe it's something like join, follow me on social media, you know, join my Facebook group or follow me on Instagram or Twitter or YouTube, you know, watch my video. So there should be um, the next step that patient or patients or whoever's reading it will be invited to take. It certainly seems like when I see most of the eBooks that are offered, uh, they're almost there's never almost never a charge for them because I don't think anyone would actually buy purchase one. But it seems like the one of the primary functions of them is to gather email addresses and contact information so that you can reach out to these people who had some initial interest at least in some of your products to then come back or to you know offer them other things maybe yeah. in the future. Right? I mean that's that's one of the primary functions of the ebook. That's a free giveaway. Yeah. Yes, and then uh, as you're completely right. So 
in most cases, it's completely free of charge. And the purpose for most ebooks is to gather emails and to create an email list. Um, now that that's a whole different, you know, aspect of it is, is how do you manage that email list and what do you do with that email list? But um, it's, it's to kind of, uh, you know, create um, a, a repository of names of, of people who may want to do business with you or may want to come see you in the future. What can you explain to what your daily practice looks like? I mean, are you, assuming this is like a regular work day, are you seeing patients, uh, all mm -hmm. new patients? Are they chronic patients? Are your patients um, paying like a membership fee or is it just always a, you know, a per visit fee that you charge? So, um, so I have uh, a fee structure, which is basically, it's very straightforward. It's a flat fee. So there's a certain fee for every new patient and there's a separate fee for every established patient. Um, occasionally I do offer discounts, you know, if it's someone with Medicare who really needs to see me or who I've seen before, um, I went into private practice, I will offer them a discounted rate or a Medicare, a Medicaid patient, for example, that I know very well, I will offer a discounted rate. Um, and um, I wish I could do a membership model, but in ophthalmology, it's quite difficult to do a yeah. membership model. So I think that is probably more amenable to uh, primary care providers. But I have many colleagues who do um, membership models, and it works wonderfully for them. Um, so it is something that um, that you know works that works quite well. Um, and then, so basically, I I have um, in my practice, I see probably the maximum would be about fifteen patients a day. And um, I have uh, new patient slots, which are one hour, though even uh, in most cases, the appointment is much longer than one hour because there's testing involved as well. Uh, but usually the face-to-face -face time with me is anywhere from 45 minutes to one hour. Um, established patients are half an hour slots. And um, uh, that also, you know, it's, it's usually more than that, that the patient is actually in the office because they're getting testing done. And, um, and then, um, so, uh, so I, I do schedule patients. Um, I try to uh, squeeze in as many patients in one day as possible uh, because, um, because I, I actually have decreased my time in private practice because my research responsibilities have kind of geared up over the past six months to one year. So temporarily, I actually cut down on my private practice time. So I was seeing patients about two and a half days a week. And now I'm only seeing patients one or one and a half days a week. So it's significantly limited compared to what I was doing before. And again, it's because of the research component right now. Um, and it's definitely a balance between everything. So I felt as though in order to still provide the same quality of care, um, I didn't want to compromise that by, by trying to see too many patients um, in one week. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the nice thing about it, whether you're changing your fee st structure or your hours, you can flex up and down because you are your own boss. And so obviously you have that, the ability to do what you want. Uh, the last question I had is about referral patterns. And one of the things that I know I've talked to other docs who've decided to go out on their own and or their fear is, you know, in today's day and age, most physicians, especially primary care physicians are in some sort of network. They're either within a hospital system. And so the referral pattern generally is uh, I wouldn't say, I guess you can't say dictated because that'd be against the law, but <laughs> for the most part, we all know that it actually is, um, it is like you have to stay within the network, right? You have to, otherwise it's called leakage or there's some other term where you suddenly are not sending your patients to the orthopedic surgeon within your, uh, your group or the neurologist or whoever it might be, the specialist. Um, do, do you find that patients are just, because I think, you know, ultimately patients have the, the choice. They can say, well, I really don't want to, I want to leave this, you know, this medical group or whatever, and I want to go outside to see so-and-so. 
is that where you're getting your patients that, that people are just still telling the primary care docs, you know, I'm, I'm just more interested in going to see Dr. Bannock because I think she might be able to treat, treat me better than the neurologist you're going to send me to. Absolutely. I think patients are advocating for themselves when it comes to um, going out of network or, you know, seeking a, a fee for service provider. Uh, and, and as I was mentioning before, um, I am usually not the first ophthalmologist or neuro-ophthalmologist they've seen. I'm usually the second or third or sometimes even the fourth because um, they're just not happy with their care elsewhere. So uh, so they're looking for a solution. And and the other thing that they're looking for is I think they're, they're looking for someone to really just listen to them. And because I do have the time, I have the luxury of the time to listen to them. You know, my visits are not rushed because I'm not in, you know, in a system where I have to generate a certain number of RVUs, you know, <laughs> uh, within a certain time frame. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I can spend that time. So uh, I think patients, that's why they, they're willing to, um, to invest that, that money because they, they realize the value of the care and the type of service that I provide. Um, and, and again, um, it's, it's a choice that the patient ultimately makes. And regardless of what their primary caregiver or their gatekeeper, who, you know, whatever you want to term it, um, that that provider is saying, um, Many patients will seek me out, and oftentimes, you know, I, I definitely communicate back with um, either the primary or, or uh, whoever you know had referred the patient or any other uh, caregivers within the the patient's team. And and I think they really appreciate um, the feedback and and the notes that I write because they're quite extensive. So I think you know, if a patient does decide to go out of network or or uh, with a provider who's who's not traditional within their mm-hmm. within their circle, um, their their provider circle. It's still important to stay within the team and 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 really to um, engage with the other providers. So I, I think it's you know something that's really critical uh, for if someone's considering doing this, you know, to to take that step and go outside um, of the traditional healthcare system. Uh, that's something that they really should uh, remember, keep in mind. Very important. Finally, looking back uh, to when you were practicing, say, five years ago, uh, how much how much better do you think you are now as a clinician and as a doctor than you were uh, back then? Um, so I think, you know, every every patient I see makes me a better doctor, actually. Sure. Um, <laughs> the, the, more, the more experience that I have, you know, dealing with various manifestations of, of the same condition. So, you know, we talked about migraine before. There are so many manifestations of migraine. Yes, there's the typical migraine with aura, but there's so many other things people can have. And, and the more I, I listen to patients, I'm learning more about the, you know, how it's affected their life, how, you know, what specific types of symptoms they have. I think my clinical acumen has improved, but also my people skills have improved significantly. Um, you know, I provide them with, um, you know, it's, it's really a, a team approach. You know, I, I collaborate with the patient for their care. I, I advocate for them. So I think that's something that has developed in, in a way that I would not have been able to do in my previous position in yeah. academics because I can really go deep and I get very, very close to my patients. So I think overall, uh, my relationships with patients are, are just so much stronger and closer knit. And, you know, many times they'll, they'll come and ask me questions that are beyond my realm of expertise. You know, as I had patients who asked me, you know, you know, Dr. Bannock, I'm going to get this dental procedure done. What kind of anesthesia should I have? And, you know, I just say, well, Oh no! <laughs> Go ask your dentist. But I, I, you know, I kind of I feel uh, you know privileged in a way because they're asking me because they trust me, 
and they trust me in a way that you know they trust my opinion beyond what I already can provide for them. So so I really um, cherish that you know that kind of uh, relationship. And so um, again, it's it's just made me a better better physician all around. I think. Yeah. Well, and I repeat this mantra probably every other show, which probably drives listeners a little crazy. But it, you know, eighty. 80 some percent of physicians, the number one reason that they get professional satisfaction in the job is the relationship they have with the patients. And this just shows you that you can actually be a specialist and get to know people and actually provide and establish that relationship to all those who are primary care and think you're the only ones who have relationships with patients. It's not true. <laughs> I can, even as someone who does see someone for a couple of minutes <laughs> doing anesthesia. Um, well, it's been a delightful discussion. Thank you so much uh, for being on with me. If people want to find out more about you and and what you're doing and what you're writing and all the ebooks and things, is the is your website the best place to go? Absolutely. So um, so please visit my website. Um, there's a um, a contact me page. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out or or you can just email me. Actually, I'm I'm very open to um, to receiving emails. And if anyone has any questions about uh, anything we've talked about, I'd be happy to to answer and, and help out. Um, if you need advice about social media, I'd be happy to do that. You know, um, very very happy to share what I've what I've learned over the past three years, which has really you know tremendously changed my life and made it so much better in so many ways. So, um, but thank you so much. I really really enjoyed being on your show, Dr. Larson. It's really been been a lot of fun actually talking about these topics. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a great time. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Bannock, and. Uh, Have a great evening. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.